evidence and answers. Shopping has begun. Holiday music fills every store. The hustle and bustle of sales and bargains are in all newspaper ads and commercials. It seems that the true message of Christmas has somehow gotten lost in the commercialism of our world. What really is the reason for the season? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat will share what the reason for the season is, the message of Christ and Him alone. If you're unable to hear any of this broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's our host, Pat Zucran, with part one of The Reason for the Season. Well, we are entering to the Christmas season, and I was reading Forbes magazine, and they listed the top ten most popular Christmas songs in just the last few years. The top ten most popular Christmas songs. Can you name some of them? Well, let's give it a try here. Number ten, Last Christmas by Wham. Number nine. I feel like David Letterman. Number nine, Jingle Bell Rock by Bobby, whatever, Helms. Number eight, any guesses? Feliz Navidad, Jose Feliciano. Number seven, Where Are You, Christmas, Faith Hill. Number six, Christmas Canon by the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. As you can see, if you're not under the age of 35, you probably don't know a lot of these songs. All right, here we go, top five. Any guesses? Can you name some of the top five? Jingle Bells, Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph, Wish You Merry Christmas, White Christmas. Well, let's take a look. These are the most popular songs from the last, just the last few years, okay? Number five, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, Renda Lee. Number four, Mistletoe, Justin Bieber. Number three, Christmas Eve by the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Number two, do you want to build a snowman by Kristen Bell? And number one, any guesses? Let it go? Oh, I don't even know that one. Huh. Well, that's a good guess because any others? All I want for... There you go. One Mariah Carey. These are great, fun songs to listen to. Nothing wrong with these songs. Don't think I'm a Scrooge here and say you shouldn't listen to anything but Christian music here. But we see a disturbing trend with the lineup of new movies coming out and the lineup of songs that we're seeing, we're seeing less and less of a reference to the reason for the season. Less and less references to Jesus Christ and the child born in Bethlehem to come and save the world and redeem us from sin and eternal death. I love watching these Christmas specials. Great fun watching these. But you see less and less of a reference to the real meaning for the season. A lot of the songs that come out, a lot of the new movies that we're watching, focus on romance, Christmas romance, or Santa Claus, or some mythical figure like Frosty the Snowman, or shopping. Very few, if any, reference the birth of Jesus Christ. And on our public property now, we're no longer allowed to put up a manger scene. Even our public schools now, bands and choirs are not allowed to sing the great Christmas hymns or songs referencing Jesus Christ or the birth in Bethlehem. 
even when you go in our shopping malls, go to Ala Moana. I was just in Southern Cal at the South Coast Plaza, one of the largest malls in the U.S. Not one reference or ornament there to Jesus Christ. Santa Claus has now become the mascot of Christmas. The myth of Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph now dominate the culture and seem to replace the true historical momentous occasion that occurred in Bethlehem. Well, with a culture that is suppressing the true message of Christmas, it is more important now than ever that Christians be able to proclaim the real reason for the season. And today, I just want to give you just four. There's many reasons for the incarnation of Christ, but this morning, I just want to present four reasons for the seasons, why God became a man. And I hope that through this study, you'll look at the incarnation, that we'll all look at it in a more meaningful, deep, and rich way, in a way that we've never looked at it before. Now, the first reason for the season, the first reason God became a man and invaded time and space and entered into our world and suffered alongside with us, the first reason is to fulfill prophecy. Christianity has a unique legacy of prophecy that is unmatched by any other ideology or religion in the world. There's no other religion that has the legacy of prophecy as Christianity has. Hundreds of events, people, places were predicted in the Bible which have come to pass. There's no other religion, no other person, no other ideology that has such a legacy of prophecy. God confirms his message and messengers with acts of God. We call them miracles. And prophecy is one of the most powerful evidences that indeed the Bible is the inspired word of God and Jesus Christ is the unique one and only divine son of God. J. Barton Payne, in his monumental work, Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, records that there are over a hundred prophecies made of Christ centuries before he set foot upon the earth, which he fulfilled. Now, we could spend all afternoon going through them, but we're just gonna, I'm just going to highlight a few that refer to the birth of Christ, since we're talking about Christmas here. 2 Samuel chapter 7 predicts the lineage of the Messiah, right? that he not only would be born a Jew, not only would he be born of the tribe of Judah, but even more specifically, he'd be born a descendant of King David. Micah 5.2 tells you the exact place of his birth, not just the continent, not just the region, not just the country, the city in which he would be born, Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14 predicts the manner of the birth. It would be a miraculous birth that he would be born of a virgin. It would be a special miraculous kind of birth. And it needed to be that kind of birth so that the sin nature passed down from Adam to all men would not pass on to the Messiah. Okay? So it needed to be a miraculous birth. Okay? born of a virgin. 
Isaiah 9.6 predicts the nature of the Messiah and also the rule of the Messiah. Isaiah 9.6 is, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It tells you the nature of the coming Messiah. He would be 100% human. A child would be born. In other words, he's human. A son is given. He would be male. And he would also be 100% God. His name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Father of Eternity. In other words, he is an eternal being, the Prince of Peace. He would be 100% man, 100% God. Not only that, verse 7 describes his rule, that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule an everlasting kingdom of righteousness, of justice, and of peace, that he will sit on the throne of King David. He would be a descendant of David and would sit on the throne of David. Literally, he would rule once again from David's throne, an everlasting kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So it describes the nature of the Messiah, that he's 100% man, 100% God, miraculously born of a virgin, and that he would rule an everlasting kingdom. How do the other religious leaders and founders of religions compare? How many prophecies are there that describe the life and coming of Muhammad? Zero. Zero. None. They try really hard. You know, Deuteronomy 18, John 14, they try really hard, but you study that, it's real simple to show that's not speaking of Muhammad, not even close. How many are there of the coming and the life and ministry of Buddha? Look at the earliest, earliest canons we've got. Zero, zero. The cults are riddled with false prophecies. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, made numerous, numerous prophecies that proved to be false. The Jehovah Witnesses predicted on several occasions that Christ would return and destroy the kingdoms of this world and, and set up his kingdom here upon this earth. They were wrong on numerous, numerous occasions. Nostradamus makes no prophecies. Read his stuff. It is so vague. You don't know what he's talking about. And on numerous occasions made numerous false predictions. Here, Quatrain 72 predicted the end of the world, July of 1999, which of course uh, is one of his many failed prophecies that did not come to pass. Well, what does prophecy prove? Well, false prophecy is a sign of a false prophet and a false message. Deuteronomy 18, the test of a true prophet is that he is correct 100% of the time. Consistently fulfilled prophecy is proof that this message is indeed from God and divinely inspired. For only an eternal God that can see past, present, and future only an omniscient God that knows all things from the beginning to the end of time can consistently bat a thousand every time when it comes to prophecy. So prophecy 
is a sign that you have a divinely inspired message. And it's only Christianity, it's only the Bible that has this kind of record. God says in Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Now he throws out the challenge. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed the ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Is there someone like me? Let's prove it by the legacy of prophecy. Verse 48, verse 5, he says, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved images and my metal image commanded them. Prophecy, the ability to predict future things with 100% accuracy, is sign of that message has a divine origin, that it comes from an omniscient, eternal being who knows past, present, and future. And that is one of the great legacies unique to the Bible and to our faith in Jesus Christ. No other ideology or philosophical or religious system has such miraculous confirmation or such powerful kind of evidence. So he came to fulfill prophecy, number one. Number two, he came to reveal deity. John 1.1 1, 1, that famous verse is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Christ, we had the incarnate Son of God, God the Son in human flesh. And verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Verse there, no one has seen God, meaning no one has fully comprehended and understood God in his fullness and in his glory. And no one has seen God in his full, magnificent glory. In Exodus 33, we read that no one can look upon the glory of God and live. Sinful human beings in our sinful state cannot dare gaze upon the full glory of the holy, perfect, and majestic God. We would not be able to stand it. Well, then what about Christ? Hundreds of people saw him. Well, yes, he came in a veiled form, veiled from his glory. Philippians chapter 2 said he emptied himself and made himself nothing, coming in the form of a servant being found in human likeness. He veiled, withheld his glory, taking on human form in a form that we could understand and comprehend and withstand. He has come. And it says, no one has ever seen God but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. The literal Greek means literally in the bosom of the Father. Okay? That represents the intimacy and the closeness that God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, that represents the closeness of a relationship he has with the Father. Many of you have children, and whenever you go out somewhere with your kids, somewhere that may be strange or unknown to them, what do your kids immediately do? They come right up to your side, right? Maybe even hold on to your leg or your hand. They're not letting go. That's the kind of intimate relationship they have, all right? So wherever there's anything that's strange or unusual to them, they come right to your side. 
the text here says Jesus is literally in the bosom of the Father, expressing a very close, intimate relationship he has with God. And he says, he has made him known. God the Son, taking on human form, has made God fully known to us. The Greek word known there is the Greek word exegasato. Okay? That's where we get the term exegesis from. Sounds like a fancy word, but exegesis is what we do every Sunday. Where we take a verse and we explain it to you. We take it apart, explain to you the structure, the key words, and we expound on the verses for you so you can have a greater, richer, fuller understanding of God's word. That's what we do every Sunday. That's what you do with your kids. Right? Each day when you're explaining to them something that they may have read or seen on the news, you further explain it to them in greater details in ways they could understand. That's what Christ did. He made himself known to us. He is the ultimate revelation of God to us. When I first became a Christian, of course, immediately, the very next day, my professors and teachers at school and friends were already telling me why Christianity cannot possibly be true. And the evidence they were presenting seemed quite overwhelming. Hasn't science, the evidence from science, shown that the Genesis account cannot be true? Right? And therefore, God does not exist. How can there be an all-powerful, loving God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? Doesn't the historical evidence show, go against the historical accuracy of the Bible? All of these cities and people, man, we haven't even found them in historical archaeology. Weren't the Gospels written hundreds of years after Christ and an inaccurate, legendary account of a man who possibly never existed? All these just seem overwhelming. And I was introduced to the wonderful world of apologetics as an 18-year-old. And one of the men that I read was a guy named Norman Geisler. And he was presenting powerful evidence and powerful arguments that Christianity was indeed true, that God did exist. The Bible was God's word. Jesus was a real historical person who lived a sinless, miraculous life, who lived and died and rose again. Powerful, powerful arguments. And as a young man, I must have read about half a dozen of his books in high school and college, being able to answer some of the powerful arguments against Christianity. And I became familiar with the uh, few books of his that I read. And his thinking and writing helped shape a lot of my theology and the thinking of today. And this man became just a giant in my eyes, so influential in my thinking. Well, after college, someone told me, they said, Norman Geisler, he teaches at a school in Dallas. And I thought, wait, this guy's alive? You know, all great theologians died 100 years ago. So while he's still alive, they said, yeah, he's teaching there at Dallas. Why don't you go study under him? I said, well, well, yeah, well, certainly. I'll go study under the man. And so I applied to graduate school. I got in, and I got there, and I wandered around campus the first day looking for Dr. Norman Geisler, the legend, Dr. Norman Geisler. And it was that year he left for another university in Virginia. So you can see how heartbroken I was that he wasn't there on campus. And so I finished the program and went on to be an associate pastor. And after I joined Probe, someone said, oh, Norman Geisler, 
well, you know, by then I had read about two dozen of his books. He said, Norman Geisler, he's teaching at a grad school in North Carolina. Why don't you go apply, go study under him? So with great excitement, I applied, I got into the program, and I began the program there in North Carolina. And I remember the first day walking into class thinking, am I finally going to meet the great Norman Geisler? And I walked into class, and there he was. And I sat there speechless. Nothing to say to the man. Here I thought I was going to bombard him and talk to him and, and have all, I had about a million things to ask the man, and there standing in front of him, I had nothing to say, just nothing. I just stood there in awe of this guy. Wish I had that effect on people. The last conference I was at, uh, three women were talking and saying, wow, listen to Pat Zucharan. Hope I get to see Pat Zucharan. So I walked up to them and I said, hello, I'm Pat Zucharan. And you could see the disappointment on their face. <laughs> One lady looked at me and she goes, you sound taller on the radio. <laughs> you sound taller. What is it? But anyway, I just stood in awe of this guy. And he looked over at me and he said, want some nuts? And the first words out of my mouth were, Dr. Geisler, you owe me. You owe me big time. And he looked. He said, why do I owe you anything? I said, you know, in 1990, I left paradise. I left Hawaii. I left a great job as a DJ and a golf instructor. I left my girlfriend. I left it all behind to study under you at Dallas Theological Seminary in 1990. And he looked and said, I left in 1990. And I said, that's why. That's why you owe me. You owe me big time. And without even smiling, he said, well, I heard you were coming. So I got out of there. And so, with a thunderous roar of laughter, we both laughed, and the entire class yeah, laughed about it. During the years, I was fortunate enough to have studied under this man as his student, fortunate enough to speak and teach alongside of him at conferences, to spend time with him here in Hawaii and in North Carolina, to write with this man, and he became more than a teacher, a figure in a book that I read, now became, he now became flesh and blood, a true live person that I spent a lot of time with. And even in the darkest days of my life, when I was ready to walk out of the ministry and call it quits, he's the one that gave me a call and told me to persevere and press on. And so he became a great friend and a mentor throughout the years. And now when I read his books, you know, it doesn't seem like uh, I'm reading words on a page, I'm reading a letter from a friend. And even when I'm reading his books, I can hear him speaking. I can hear his voice resonating in my ears. And I can even picture him sitting there lecturing or sitting down and speaking to us. Suddenly now his books come alive and I can hear that voice resonating in my mind. And Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, left his heavenly throne to reveal God to us. God did not want to be just a concept in a book. God wanted you to see him as he truly is in the best way possible to reveal himself and make himself known to you in a deep and intimate way. That's why he became a man, to live amongst us. So that we're not just reading about some divine figure or concept living up there in heaven. Here with Christ, we had God incarnate, someone who we saw suffer with us, cry.
cry with us, rejoice with us. We saw him getting upset, getting frustrated, getting hungry, getting tired. We could meet God in person. And so when we read the word of God, hopefully it's not just words on a page, but we can picture the eternal God sitting down, speaking with us. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. Also, we have articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Evidence and Answers.